If you know your American history well, the mid-80s, everybody in New York got so high they could barely function. And in the art world, it was like an epidemic. I mean, there was AIDS and then there was coke and dope. And I don't know exactly what his drugs of choice were, but he certainly was not the only young man to perish at that time. By the 90s, he was through and, uh, you know, died without anybody noticing in a hospital in Buffalo. Hmm. But I'd never heard of Julius Eastman. He lived three blocks away from me. I mean, it's that kind of life. I'm Seth Bostead. I'm talking with Phil Klein from Q2 Music. This is another in our recurring collaborations called Soundword. It's a collaboration between Relevant Tones and Q2 Music, in which we bring in new releases and discuss them. That was recorded in 1974. It is music of Julius Eastman, a piece called Feminine. And that is feminine, F-E-M-E-N-I-N-E. I believe it's supposed to mean like feminine. Sexuality was a big part of Julius Eastman's ethos. He's a composer that made a name for himself in the sort of legendary downtown New York scene in the 1970s and 80s. And he's having a renaissance basically right now. Unbelievably, yeah. It's like it's because it's really because of Peter Kotick and SEM documenting all those concerts. Otherwise, people would just be saying, oh, you should have heard Julius Eastman. He wasn't entirely forgotten. And one very important person, Mary Jane Leach, composer who was a big fan of his music, tracked down what was left, and there was a fair amount left. They were lucky to find relatively decent recordings of his music. And through Mary Jane's efforts, New World Records put out a set called Unjust Malaise, an anagram for Julius Eastman, which features a handful of pretty good recordings of some of his best music. And that's important because what we just heard, that recording of Feminine, is not what I would call Julius Eastman's best music, nor a very good recording. But it just came out. It's a legendary recording. Yeah, if somebody says, hey, I've got an original recording of the premiere of Beethoven's Ninth, you're not going to say, oh, the sound's <laughs> no good. So, you know. Exactly. The other thing I love about Julius getting to be better known now is that he really awakens everybody to the fact that minimalism is not as monolithic as you might think. I was just going to ask you that. I don't know a whole lot about Eastman. You know, it's clearly minimalist-derived music, and yet there's something different to it. How does he relate to other minimalist composers of that time? One important thing, he had cred on both sides. He was both an uptown and a downtown guy. Mm -hmm. He went to Curtis. He was associated with SUNY Buffalo, which was always kind of on the... Oh, you know, Morton Feldman, all that, you know, the, the more academic modernist side. And yet here he is downtown, and he gets a gig with Meredith. So Meredith Monk's music is so personal and so organic, uh, although she never goes around, you know, bad-mouthing uptown. She was, like, essentially downtown, independent. And then here's Julius, and his music is very free. It's, it's, I mean, it's structured, it's beautifully organized, but it's also he, he lets the inner child out, and his inner child is a little on the angry side, too. So there's this sense of, I'm a gay man, I'm a black man, here it is, in your face. Um, it's fascinating, but there was a lot more of this sort of atypical minimalism going on around that time that's just been forgotten, and we think it's all rice and glass, and maybe, well, you can actually hear a little bit of Terry Riley in that last recording, but... Uh, there was a lot more there. That's uh, It just shows us that a lot of what we know from history is lost. And as you said, there's an edge to the music, too. I mean, more like yeah. the Louis Andreessen kind of you know, edgy minimalism, mm-hmm. as it were. Even when it's funny, it's still there's something like kind of tickling or scratching. Mm-hmm. or Yeah, no, he's fascinating. Like the comedy of Richard Pryor or somebody at the same time. <laughs> it's funny, and yet it's unsettling. Well, we won't get into some of his other titles right now, but yeah. Fortunately, as I said before, you can find those on this New World release, Unjust Malaise. 
He wrote a lot of pieces with very provocative titles. This is one of them. I'll give you the first word. It's evil. This is a piece that could be performed by any number of like instruments. In this case, it is, I believe, four pianos, and these are members of the SEM ensemble with the composer at the piano as well.
Music of Julius Eastman, members of the SEM Ensemble, including the director, Peter Kotick, and the composer of the piece, Julius Eastman. That was recorded in the mid-'70s when the SEM Ensemble was really giving Julius Eastman the, back, the only backing he ever really had. Uh, what I find wonderful about his brand of minimalism is that it's so not doctrinaire. He's clearly in that scene, he's in that context, and sometimes I hear echoes of Terry Riley or something like that, but there's never a sense, of, well, you get so much from Steve Reich and, and some composers, which is, this is how minimalism is, and if you do, do something different, that's not minimalism, and you never get that sense from Julius Eastman. He is just doing what he wants to do. He's very free with it, and in a way, it's wonderfully childlike, although, as I said before, it's also very sad and angry. The way he layers the pianos is such an aggressive sound, and yet I'm always skeptical of more than two pianos. I'm always thinking, <laughs> you don't need the third piano, the fourth piano, even six pianos now sometimes, and yet in this case, you do. I mean, you get this. It's an incredible sound right from the beginning of the piece. It just grabs you. you know, it's in your face, which, is, of course, I think it's meant to be. Absolutely. Well, I want to move from that to a piece by Cambodian composer Chinnery Ung, and this is a pretty interesting story, sad story in many ways. He came to the United States to study music in California, and uh, this was in the 1970s also, and the Khmer Rouge uprising happened back home in Cambodia, and so he was effectively a refugee here in this country. And, of course, after a couple of decades when it was safe to go home, well, he was pretty much an American at that point. So he, he's been here the entire time. But a lot of his music is, is about strife. It's about conflict. It's about being a refugee, being a stranger in a strange land. And he has a series of pieces called Spiral. And the spiral actually refers to a, a musical idea here in which he's manipulating pitches in various and sundry ways throughout the different pieces in the Spiral series. He's also got some mild synesthesia going on. So he's got colors that he's associating with a lot of the pieces. And I was taken by this piece, Spiral two of all the pieces in the series, largely because of the instrumentation. It's for mezzo, soprano, tuba, and piano, <laughs> which has to be a commission, right? <laughs> There's a couple of faculty members somewhere, hey, we should, we should get together. There's no repertoire for this. How about chinnery? <laughs> I think this started with a bet somewhere. <laughs> Quite possibly. But it's a phenomenal piece. I really love the way that it's layered, and so I'm going to play it for everyone today. This is Spiral 2 by Chinnery Ung. Oh, oh, oh. 
That's well, a wild piece, obviously, by Chenery Ong. It's called Spiral 2, and he has at least 10 of these spiral pieces. They're all different, all for different instrumentations. The only thing they have in common is this idea of pitch manipulation, which you can really hear between the mezzo-soprano and the tuba. He's frequently either doubling her or he's right behind her a little bit, playing exactly what she was doing just before he's doing it. We heard Daniel Parentoni, tuba, Judy Selheim, mezzo-soprano, what a task she has, and Robert Hamilton on piano. Fairly interesting instrumentation as well. Most of the spirals have a lot of Cambodian type of percussion instruments in them, so I kind of chose this one too. It's a bit of a departure in that sense. And uh, well, it's, it's a wild piece, but I think it's a lot of fun. So that's one of the reasons that I brought it in today. New to me. Yeah, I think it's it's not one of his uh, more popular spiral pieces. Again, I think the more meditative percussion ones are, are the ones that get performed a lot more. And this is a, it's such an acrobatic vocal part. I mean, to find singers that, that are willing to take that on in new music circles, I mean, you know, people will, will do the bigger name pieces that they know they'll get reviewed for, but to do that kind of work for a piece that's not super well known, <laughs> it's mm -hmm. hard to get people to do it. But I think it's a lot of fun. And Chinri Ung is a composer. We, we were about to program a piece of his, which we may do in April for a series we're doing at National Sawdust for solo cello, which is just this beautiful, beautiful meditative piece. And so it got me listening to his stuff, and, mm -hmm. and I went through and listened to several of the spiral pieces. And I thought, yeah, I'll bring in Spiral 2. Cool. It'll, it'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be different, at least. <laughs> 
You're listening to Relevant Tones, a show featuring the music of contemporary composers. Today's episode is another in our recurring series called Soundword, in which I sit down with Phil Klein from Q2 Music to discuss new releases or music that's new to each of us. To subscribe to our podcast, for streaming versions of this and all previous episodes, or for a complete playlist of what you've heard on the program today, you can visit RelevantTones.com. And if you'd like to hear a 24-7 stream of this kind of music, you can visit Q2Music.org.
turn the phone off at night.
What you've been listening to is music from Hopscotch, which will require a little bit of explanation. First of all, it was an unconventional novel written by Julio Cortazar, published in 1963, and the concept is that you could read the book in different chapter sequences. And on the cover of the book was what looked like a child's drawing of a hopscotch. What do you call it? A hopscotch map? A hopscotch, you know, <laughs> the thing your daughter might have done on the sidewalk when she was seven years old. And like in a game of hopscotch, you could go to the different squares in different orders. The Industry, which is the name of a very unconventional opera company in Los Angeles, get it? The Industry? has made an opera of hopscotch. And it goes by some of those rules. Time is unfolded. Uh, it's random. The way they did it is even more unusual. You do not sit in a hall. There's no proscenium. What you do is make a reservation for a limo. You get in the limo, and you are accompanied by one or more of the characters from the opera and one or more of the musicians from the opera, and it takes you on a ride, and then it drops you off somewhere else. You get in another car with other characters from the opera and drive back and forth across L.A. I mean, how L.A. could this thing possibly be? Uh, I wasn't there, but I read a lot about it, and it sounds like it was quite an experience. Fittingly, the opera has six librettists and six composers. I'll, I'll give you the list here. Uh, Veronica Krausus, Mark Lowenstein, Andrew McIntosh, Andrew Norman, Ellen Reed, and David Rosenblum. What we just heard was a section that is credited to Andrew Norman, and I have to admit I'm not quite sure how they went about recording this because in some of the sections you're clearly in a car. They recorded it in a car exactly as you would have heard it if you had been one of those passengers. That section, which is the end, people did get out of their cars and hear sort of like a combination of things, and I think that that's what they were trying to uh, get across there. <laughs> you can get pretty good recording sound, I would think, in a car in L.A., because you're just not moving. Right? Yeah, right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I mean, you have to worry about car horns and you know, and people getting on their cars and singing, like in La La Land. But other than that, I mean, you don't have to worry about the sound of wishing air or because no one's moving. <laughs> Precisely, yeah. And I think at the ending, you're in one of those like canyony parts of town where you're sort of like looking over a little bit of vista with people playing and singing from the hills and valleys. It seems like a perfect project for Andrew Norman. I mean, first of all, he's so games-oriented. Everything mm. he writes, there, mm -hmm. there's these games where the, where the musicians themselves are, are, are part of a game. I mean, there's yes. play yes. or, or, or uh, the, the percussion concerto where the percussionists control the orchestra, mm -hmm. so to speak, when they play this sort of yeah. thing. You know, it's, And he's really interested in video games. I do want to underline, though, that this is not Andrew Norman's piece. He's just one of six. and he, you know, I thought this excerpt was oh, That Norman. excerpt is Andrew Norman. I'm just saying that he in no right. way dominates yeah. the proceedings. It's very much a, a group effort with a capital G. Still that concept of hopscotch, that's so, that's so Andrew Norman to me. We know he loves to play. <laughs> now, something I should mention about this particular piece as a product, I mean, it's just been released as a USB drive. So you have your drive and you plug it into your computer or some smart device that takes a USB plug, and then it plays the tracks randomly. It organizes the opera for you every time you play it. It's about two and a quarter hours long. I have no idea if it's going to be released in other formats, but uh, the consensus is that the best way to do this is plan a road trip, plug it into some device in your car, and drive with it. And that makes perfect sense to me. So. I love this idea because you know, there's a lot of pieces in the world that, that can be played in any order. But nobody's ever figured out how to record that. <laughs> and so now you have this USB drive that essentially shuffles the order every time. So it's never the same. <laughs> I love that idea. Yeah.
a good thing about technology. Well, I'm going to end the program with a piece by Caleb Burns, who is a fairly well-known young New York composer, a member of ACME, American Contemporary Music Ensemble. And the piece is called Yardsight. It's for a string quartet. And about this piece, the composer says, The Yardsight is a time of remembering the dead by reciting the Kaddish, lighting a 24-hour candle, and remembering the person who has died. This was written in 2009, around the anniversary of the composer's father's death. So it is a, a somber piece for sure, but there's also that, that aspect to it when you're remembering someone that you love. There, there's a lot of really warm and uh, wonderful things about it too. I think it's a great piece. It's really sensitive. It's a great performance by the members of ACME. So here it is, Yard Sight by Caleb Burns.
That's music by Caleb Burns for a string quartet. I think it's a great performance. This is on a new release by Sona Luminous, and the group is Acme. The performers are Ben Russell, violin, Caroline Shaw, violin, Clarice Jensen, cello, and Caleb Burns, viola. The piece is called Yardsite, and this is a traditional Jewish, Jewish, this is a traditional Jewish homage for the dead when you recite the Kaddish, light candles, and remember this person who has passed away. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of Caleb's work. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, often these days, when you hear somebody who's coming across, you know, very sort of straightly tonal, you draw a judgment, or perhaps you do. I've been known to do that. Where I I don't know. I just in Caleb. Let's just say in Caleb's case, I take it at face value. It seems very sincere. I just really like it, and I don't get the sense that Caleb's doing this because he doesn't have an imagination to do something else. I just think he really doesn't give a whatever, and he pl- he writes what he feels, and I, I believe in what he's doing. Who was it that said there's still plenty to be said in C major? Uh, I know Eno said it, but I think Schoenberg, I think a lot of okay. people have said that. Uh, Schoenberg uh, said it, of all people. Yeah. I didn't know <laughs> What I like is when Stephen Sondheim studied with Milton Babbitt, he showed him a piece of music the first time he went to his class at Milton Babbitt. He says, don't, don't write 12-tone stuff. You have not exhausted your tonal resources yet. So that's the way I feel about it. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Soundword. Once again, I'm Seth Bosted from Relevant Tones. I'm Phil Klein from Q2 Music. And we hope you'll tune in next time for Soundword. Relevant Tones has been produced by Sarah Zwinklis and engineered by Hannes Brown. Special thanks to our intern, Liz Peterson, and additional production help provided by Rebecca Neistat. Relevant Tones is made possible by the generous support of the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music and the listener supporters of WFMT. I'm Seth Bosted from the WFMT Radio Network, Chicago.